as um, many of you uh, probably know, in most, if not all, of the wisdom traditions in the world, um, there's a focus on impermanence, on change. So Buddhism doesn't have a corner on that particular topic. But um, nevertheless, the focus on impermanence is uh, quite important in the Buddhist tradition. And there is a way in which this focus is, um, in a way, uh, anti-contemporary American culture. Because, of course, there's this uh, subtext with the focus on impermanence of uh, dismantling our attachment to conventional success. (laughs) Nothing like a little impermanence to do it. Um, I want to uh, talk tonight about our inclination for certainty. And the kind of cluster of reactive patterns that uh, come up around our uh, wanting to be certain about all kinds of things. For example, I'm quite looking forward to getting this new hip, but I know better than to say, on March 23rd, I'm going to get a new hip. (laughs) The most I can say is that I'm scheduled to get a new hip. (laughs) There's a particular focus uh, that can uh, lead us into a lot of suffering that has to do with assumptions particularly assumptions that we don't check out or notice we're um, holding. And in particular, our assumptions about the future, uh, specifically what we expect will or won't happen. One of the uh, old uh, Zen guys, in his instructions to the cook, This is, of course, in the monastic tradition, but I think it's relevant. Said to the cook, the night before, get everything ready for making breakfast. But along with getting everything ready for making breakfast, remember that in the morning there may not be breakfast, there may not be a kitchen, um, you may not even be alive. (laughs) So you are ready for (laughs) breakfast, but you're not certain it's going to happen (laughs) for any one of a number of reasons. You laugh, except that when any of us has an expectation that we're very keen on and then things turn out differently, which in my experience they very often do, uh, suffering arises. (laughs) I've in the last uh, while been thinking about this um, mental reactive pattern uh, that we would call having an expectation and the uh, reactive pattern of being certain about things. And I've been thinking about and and watching the arising in my own mind but also in the minds of those around me. Uh, How much trouble we get into with that impulse to want to be certain. 
the impulse about being certain about what somebody else's intention is, for example. Being certain that we know about what motivated to somebody to say something or not say something, to do something or not do something. A few weeks ago, um, I, uh, I led a three-day retreat, and we were working with the cultivation of the mind of don't know. Uh, my first uh, teacher, uh, Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, who was a Zen master around whom the San Francisco Zen Center formed, um, used to talk a lot about uh, beginner's mind. And, of course, anything that we do as a beginner, we do uh, with that sense of not ever having done this before. And in the Buddhist tradition, this capacity to um, experience, to be present with each breath, each moment, each experience, as though for the first time, is uh, called beginner's mind. Anybody involved in any kind of creative work certainly understands the uh, extraordinary benefit of um, being able to bring that kind of fresh, free of expectation, free of certainty, full of uncertainty, if you will, to what one is doing. So I've been thinking about what is that impulse for certainty arising around and I don't think uh, there's any one answer, but I think that um, fear certainly uh, is underneath our wanting to be certain about things. Because for many of us, unless we practice, a lot of fear comes up when we really sit with, actually, I don't know what's going to happen next or tomorrow or a week from now or five years from now. So we act as if we can be certain about something as a way of comforting ourselves, perhaps. And what I want to propose for all of us, myself included, is that the cultivation of more and more ease with uncertainty, being uncertain, actually being willing to allow ourselves to touch or to know how much we don't know, can be the, the ground, the spawning ground, if you will, for delight, for joy, for uh, being surprised at what happens. Uh, recently, my husband and I were uh, down in um, Desert Hot Springs at a uh, quite wonderful uh, motel, 1940s most motel, some friends of ours uh, bought and fixed up by stripping it down. <laughs> and um, Desert Hot Springs is quite a small town. And uh, when we would uh, go to eat a meal, my husband indulged me with uh, something I love to do, namely eavesdropping. <laughs> I am uh, quite 
fascinated with uh, what we human beings conjure up. And uh, one morning, we were in a uh, breakfast restaurant, and the two men sitting behind my husband, he didn't get to see the people I was eavesdropping with, but he got to watch my face as I was listening to them. And um, they were both really certain about the women in their lives. And it wasn't happy. <laughs> they were really certain about their motivation, what, what they were after, etc. And I was struck by um, that eavesdropped on conversation by my own experience about how much I'll be certain about a situation or another person because um, I'm afraid of just sitting with don't know. During this uh, retreat that we did on um, don't know, basically uh, what we did for three days was to just drop in don't know, don't know, don't know, don't know, don't know, don't know, on the breath. And what uh, people in the retreat discovered was that whenever any kind of reaction would come up, like a judgment about somebody or something, don't know, dismantled that reaction like that. Oh, release from suffering. And in the... um, comments that some of the people I practice with who did the retreat have, uh, have made since the retreat, what I keep hearing is the relief of remembering how much I don't know, especially about other people, and being able to begin to see how um, conjured up the basket of what I'm filled with what I'm certain about is. How much certainty arises out of fear about what I'm actually uncertain about. And I think if you, uh, and I want to invite you to spend not even a whole day necessarily, a few hours Noticing when you have this experience of certainty arising and pose for yourself in that moment of, well, I'm certain so-and-so is going to be late. The possibility of cultivating one's willingness to be surprised. Maybe up until now so-and-so has been late when we've made a date, but... I don't know if my friend will be late this time. How much of the impulse for certainty is because of the discomfort that arises when I let myself actually notice I don't know what's going to happen. I've lived at the place where um, I both live and teach for um, 30 years. It's probably not a good idea to stay anywhere (laughs) for that long. For one thing, one just accumulates too much. (laughs) 
But of course, one of the things that happens when we live in one place, we have one job, we have a certain friend for a long time, we get lulled into thinking, well, because I've been in this situation for this amount of time, I'll stay here until I die, which is, of course, not going to happen anytime soon. How many of us actually think that death may come at any time, may be inevitable, but it's not going to happen to me anytime soon? We don't know. And one of the reasons for focusing on impermanence in Buddhism is because then we have the chance to um, work with our own mind stream, work with our own patterning in such a way that we can, with attention, begin to live more and more without regret. And if I live without regret, whenever death comes, my dying will be very different than if I've turned away from and ignored what I regret. But to do that, I have to be uh, uncertain about, will I wake up in the morning? Can I have a kind of tentative relationship to the plans that I make so that when they don't turn out to be the way I expected them to be, I can be present with the possibility in the moment that actually arises. My experience is that for many of us, we have so much discomfort arise with uncertainty that we conjure up, we create, we, we manufacture certainty as a way of uh, turning away from uh, or distracting ourselves from what we're actually uncertain about. So what I want to suggest as a kind of point of uh, attention is notice, begin to be interested in curio- and have curiosity about whenever certainty arises. And for just a moment, let yourself notice the detail of what surrounds that certainty. Notice, and my guess is that the noticing will at least initially start after the fact. Notice an expectation that you had about some situation or conversation or a meeting you were going to have or you know, just about anything, notice expectations that you didn't realize you had, but that you notice later because, of course, things didn't turn out the way you thought they were going to. If I notice later, oh, I had an expectation about how long it would take us to drive here this evening, but I wasn't conscious of having a certain expectation. If I, if I notice, oh, I had an expectation that it would take 45 minutes to drive here, but we came the back way and it took an hour. 
I may not notice that I had that expectation about how long it would take to get here until after, afterwards when I got here late, fortunately. <laughs> we, we got here on time. But I notice afterwards, oh, I had an expectation and I wasn't entirely conscious of having it. So I didn't have the chance to notice whether it was realistic or not. That's the moment where often we beat up on ourselves. Not a good idea. Because all I'm doing then is driving a deeper groove with the habit of judging what I didn't notice, didn't pay attention to, rather than noticing, oh, I had an expectation I wasn't aware of. The more I begin to notice what I'm certain about and what expectations I have, what assumptions I make after the fact, if I I respect what I notice when I notice, the lag time begins to shorten. And I will begin to have greater awareness ahead of time, not afterwards. But that process will not take place if I'm on my case about what I didn't notice until later. Now, for those of you who are new to meditation or um, brand new or still getting your, uh, your feet wet, so to speak, or your <laughs> back stiff or whatever... <laughs> It's sometimes uh, a little bit of a mystery about, you know, what is it I'm doing here when I'm sitting still, trying not to wiggle, besides reviewing what happened today that I didn't like or that I did like or that I want to have tomorrow or uh, what I have to do when I get home, etc. Thinking. Let me just say a few words about uh, what I understand meditation to be about. If I sit down and am quiet and sit in a way that is the arrangement of the body that, that is what accompanies being in attention, I have the chance of beginning to notice my habits. I have the chance to begin to notice the difference between reactions in being out of attention and being present. But I have to be clear about what it is I'm placing my attention on. In the Zen tradition, which is my home path, there's an enormous amount of attention placed on the arrangement of the physical body and the breath. And in the context of paying attention to or periodically checking, how's my posture return to breath? What I begin to notice is how much my mind wanders. So if I'm clear what the focus in meditation is, then when I notice wandering, I can bring attention, the mind, back to the focus of the meditation. So the beginning stage of meditation is called constant placement. Now, 
I practice that noticing wandering and coming back to the moment in formal meditation so that I can begin to do that when I'm not meditating. So I can begin to notice when I'm out of attention and come back into attention in the course of my so-called everyday life. And part of the noticing is not only noticing when the mind has started to wander and placing on whatever the focus in meditation is, but also beginning to bring attention to what are my reactions, what arises in the mind reactively. Because it is our reactions that is this cluster of what in the Buddha's teachings is described as our suffering. I think one way of understanding suffering is as reactivity. Knee-jerk, reactive, what do you mean, for example. And of course, reactions are not based on what's happening in the moment. They're based on the past. So I'm, I'm practicing in meditation the process of gathering and collecting body and mind in order to be able to notice the arising of a reaction, but not lingering with the reaction so that I keep reinforcing it, but just noticing it and then coming back to physical body, breath. So one of the um, noticings, one of the reactions that I'm bringing up for your attention this evening is the reactive mental patterning of expectation the reactive mental pattern of being certain about something, even when, in fact, I'm not certain. I'm faking it for my own comfort, usually, or that of somebody else. I'm absolutely certain I'll meet you tomorrow for lunch. Well, maybe I will and maybe I won't, for example. Now, of course, there's, as I'm sure you know, a whole host of places the mind goes by way of distraction, by way of habit. Expectation about the future is only one of many habits. And what is useful is to, for a certain amount of time, to just notice whatever one's reactions are, so that you, after a while, have a pretty good idea of what the two or three dominant patterns are for you. And they aren't going to be the same for everybody. And there are certain um, patterns that are very strong, depending on the kind of family one grew up in, uh, the kinds of experiences that we've had growing up, and as adults. But there are also conditions that uh, come to us from the culture we live in. And we live in a culture with a lot of focus on what's going to happen in the future. And I think that that combination of the patterns 
from my family of origin in combination with the patterns from my culture, when, when, when the, there's a reinforcement uh, of those patterns in those different ways, they can be very difficult to change, but they can be changed. But I can't change what I don't notice. So what I want to uh, propose is uh, that you might find useful and interesting and maybe even liberating paying attention to expectations. Paying attention to whenever you notice, oh, the future. I'm planning about the future. And I'm not proposing that we don't do that, but what I am proposing is that we loosen the certainty factor. I think the whole Buddhist meditation path is very much about cultivating greater and greater capacity for a kind of tentativeness in what we hold to be so or what we think is going to happen later tonight or in the morning or next week. The combination of being uh, tentative about our, what we, what we uh, hold in view uh, can be very helpful because, of course, we don't have quite the iron grip when there's that quality of tentativeness that we have with certainty. Some of you have heard me uh, talk before know that I, uh, I sometimes talk about my no longer living mother who was in many ways... Uh, my teacher. She was absolutely certain that dying was what happened to everybody else, but not to her. So when she came to her own dying at age 94, um, she was shocked. (laughs) And I remember um, not very long before she passed away, Um, we had a fairly uncharacteristic conversation about dying, and she admitted to me that she certainly knew that other people died, but she thought that she was an exception. She genuinely did think she was an exception. So she wasn't prepared. (laughs) So we can have expectations that can be actually very serious in terms of the consequences of our expectations. We can't change what we don't notice. It's like having a a wound that we aren't aware we have. If you've cut your arm, you have to know something about the nature of the cut before you can begin to take care of it. And the same is true with the habits in the mind. I remember when I uh, first started uh, practicing uh, meditation in this, uh, in this path, um, I didn't know what was in front of me, but I didn't really know what I was signing up for. But I had um, gone to hear Suzuki Roshi give a lecture. And um, I had some few years 
earlier uh, read something about Buddhism, um, but didn't realize that this was a tradition which was still alive and a path that one could practice. But the evening when I went to hear Suzuki Roshi lecture, I recognized, oh, here is somebody who's actually picked up this path of practice for studying the nature of suffering, the nature of the mind, and cultivating our capacity to actually um, choose how to be in the world. And it's, it's extremely important to um, allow ourselves the experiences of being around people who've been practicing for a long time without quite knowing what we're uh, sensing in somebody who has been practicing for a long time, has some degree of cultivation as a result of their meditation practice, um, we get a, a kind of the smell or the feel of possibilities, not only for that person, but for ourselves. I remember um, one time when uh, somebody had uh, come in the front door of the uh, Zen Center in San Francisco who was um, a very, uh, somebody that the people, the students in the, in the uh, main entranceway were a little bit on alert about. Mm. Who is this guy and what he's, what's he doing here? And a lot of fear came up. And Suzuki Roshi came down the stairs into the entranceway about that time and walked right up to this guy and started talking to him. <laughs> and um, he started moving towards the front door. And the man he was talking to moved with him, and then he started moving closer to the front door. And then he opened the front door, and they stood out on the front porch, and Suzuki Roshi said, well, nice to talk to you, and stepped inside and shut the door. (laughs) (laughs) And when I asked him afterwards, um, did you know that that was a scary guy, or that maybe he was up to no good, or he said, no. But he didn't look like somebody who was interested in meditation, at least not yet. And um, we live in a new neighborhood that we don't know where there's a lot of street crime and we have to pay attention to where we are and what's going on. But if I could talk to this man with respect, tell him a little bit about what we're up to, and then it's time to say goodbye and shut the door. I... I, uh, I'm surprised. I mean, this was, what, 1969. And I'm surprised at how vivid that experience still is for me. Because, of course, those of us who were standing around not knowing what to do had a lot of expectations about what this person was up to. And what Suzuki Roshi was doing was being present with the person who was standing in front of him. The whole Buddhist meditation path is about cultivating 
our capacity to come back into the present moment, to be present more of the time. And expectation and assumption is not about being present. It's about projecting out into the future based on the past. So I hope that uh, you might find paying attention to expectations that you have, um, that that might be useful, interesting and useful to you. Um, But of course, the proof will be in your own noticing. So I wonder if uh, any of you have something you'd like to bring up or talk about more or questions you want to ask. Yes? I wonder how intention fits into this. We have a lot of intentions about Mm -hmm. the future Mm -hmm. and other people rely on those. Is that a way out? I think it's a a very useful question. And um, I think particularly in the context of the meditation tradition, clear intention is uh, uh, we use that language as a way of talking about a kind of aiming. So, for example, if I have the clear intention of developing my capacity to not lie, that intention includes noticing when I don't keep my intention. Because of it's, it, when I'm keeping my intention, there's not, there's, there's not much effort to that. But be beginning to notice when I'm not keeping it, that's where the, the edge is for me. So when I have an intention, that, that includes noticing when I don't keep it as a way of beginning to notice those moments. So I understand uh, the setting of an intention as a kind of aiming point that includes when I don't keep it my commitment to noticing that moment and to keep recommitting um, whatever my intention is. So part of keeping having an intention is the practice of confession, regret, renewal of intention. And I, I think the setting of an intention is itself a kind of practice path. So if I set an intention you know, New Year's resolutions. <laughs> New Year's Eve, we think about, you know, what our intentions are going to be. But actually, most people, in my experience, set intentions that are too big and not doable. And then we sink when we realize, oh, I haven't thought about my intention for the last month. What happened to that? If I start with an intention that is really doable, and I may only set it for the next hour or this morning or this evening... I begin to build a certain confidence about my ability to keep bringing the intention up. So I'll set an intention in the morning when I first wake up, and then at the end of the day, well, how did it go? How did that intention show up in the day that I had? Which includes noticing when I didn't keep it, and bringing up my regret for whatever I regret and the re-establishing of my intention just before I go to sleep. So if the intention doesn't have the flavor of being set in concrete, 
what we're really talking about is a very lively relationship with a kind of aiming that I'm, that I'm going for. But it's not static or fixed. It's not set and concrete. At least not in my experience. And, and also my experience is that having a clear intention can be surprisingly uh, effective in m- allowing myself to move towards something I want to move towards that I may not be completely confident I can pull off. If I begin modestly, I begin to develop more and more skill in the way I set an intention that isn't just uh, overreaching. But I, I, the way I understand intention is not laced with certainty in the sense that I'm talking about. The very inclusion of not keeping an intention keeps it uh, more fluid, more tentative <laughs> in a certain way. Yeah, thank you. That's a good question. Yeah. Well, of course, I do think what we're making an agreement about varies depending on the specific (laughs) agreement. I mean, for example, um, if two people in an intimate relationship have made an agreement about the ground of that relationship being one uh, which involves some promises around fidelity, and that's broken by either party, there is an erosion in the relationship. So um, that's, that's a different order of magnitude, if you will, than um, my agreeing to pick my husband up at five on a Friday afternoon when it's rainy and I'm caught in traffic and I don't pick him up until 6.30. <laughs> we had an agreement. Well, this actually happened some number of years ago. And Bill can say something about his experience, but I know mine was that um, I got pretty fritzed trying to figure out how to pick something up I needed, you know, a a projector I needed for an event in the evening on one side of town and he's on the other side of town. Um, I did finally get to him, and he, you know, had a book that he'd had in his pocket that he was reading in the doorway out of the rain, and I think he was far less undone by the uh, agreement we'd made about when I'd meet him not holding. If either or both parties see an agreement as set in stone... Um, there's, there's a higher, in my experience anyway, there's a higher likelihood of some dis-ease around whatever that agreement is. And the best I can do is to give the person I've made an agreement with all the information I have when I have it in, in terms of what pertains to the agreement we've made. 
But, you know, I, if I don't have the information at the time I've made the agreement and it's only later I realize this is an agreement I can't keep or I'm not able to keep it fully or, you know, there's a lot of play there depending on the specific detail. But I do think that there are certain, there are certain agreements or promises, if you will, that are more foundational or fundamental relationally than others. And um, I sometimes talk about Buddhist practice, Buddhist meditation practice being a kind of braille method. <laughs> we kind of just grope along here trying to figure out how did this happen? And the more we pay attention to the consequences of what we do or don't say and we do or don't do, uh, we begin to be, um, at least have the possibility of being more careful about what we promise. And in particular, we hopefully will be more and more careful about the promises we make to ourselves. I think that's where, that's the, agree, that's the agreement territory that can be significantly harmful. When I make a promise to myself that I'm going to do something or not do something, and I don't keep my word with myself, that undercuts my ability to have confidence in a promise that I make to myself and or to another person. So keeping one's word can have a lot of consequences, or not keeping one's word in both cases, I would say. I don't know if that gets at what you're asking about, but um, <laughs> I like to fool around, as you may have gathered. And um, <laughs> if I say to somebody I'm going to do something and then circumstances change, I'm not able to keep that promise. I've been known to say, well, I lied. <laughs> I know I said i meet you and do such and such tomorrow, but in fact, I'm not able to. So I think that part of what I'm talking about is the process of beginning to pay more attention to what I say I'm going to do so that I don't just give my word to myself or to another person that sets up expectations if I haven't put a little, a, a certain degree of attention into, is this actually something I probably will be able to do? And if we're willing to uh, have a certain amount of egg on our face when we made a mistake or overextended ourselves in some way or another, we in time begin to refine our ability to make an agreement that we actually can keep. And I think for a lot of us, we either have to do it perfectly or we're a failure. We don't allow ourselves a certain kind of learning curve for that process of making agreements that are actually doable. It, it becomes more the territory of a kind of, well, this is what I'd like to be able to do. Yes? So when it comes to lunch, if 
So what happens if I'm in a traffic accident? <laughs> it's probably only okay when you find out that I didn't meet you for lunch because I was in an accident and went to the hospital instead. But until you have that information, maybe it wasn't okay, right? <laughs> Not necessarily. If I say to you, um, I will meet you for lunch tomorrow, I will do everything in my power to meet you for lunch tomorrow. And I know at this stage in my life, having <laughs> mucked around in this territory, that something may happen that keeps me from having lunch with you tomorrow at 1. But, um, so, I understand that there is a kind of tentativeness to that arrangement, but in the spirit of what I was, what I started out with about, about uh, Dogen's instructions to the cook, the cook has a similar kind of a, a deal with everybody in the monastery that she's going to cook breakfast unless there's an earthquake and the whole thing falls apart or everybody dies or whatever. So that's what I mean by the benefit of holding our plan to meet for lunch tomorrow with a kind of tentativeness, not in the, in the form of, well, if I get a better lunch date, I'm not going to meet you, but the kind of tentativeness that takes into account that death can come at any time. That's a different order of tentativeness. You see what I mean? Um, so I think what I'm talking about has everything to do with what we actually do in our everyday lives, in the lives we have. Because if my attention about the arising of the impulse for certainty isn't something I'm going to notice, not on my cushion, but all the time, as much as I can, uh, I'm wasting my time. I mean, I think that the whole Buddhist meditation tradition is about the possibility of taking what we're noticing in meditation into our daily lives. Otherwise, it's just in this little hermetically sealed box. And... Uh, Change happens in my everyday life. That's where the change happens. So, you know, what I'm talking about isn't great or not great, only useful if in some way you feel inclined to pick up noticing certainty arising and see what happens. And in the end, the greatness or the want of it depends on what I do with something that somebody offers. You know, I, I have to pick up a, a focus in this particular hand 
and in the particular life that's accompanying this hand. And I can't do that for you. You're the only one who can do that for you. So as, you know, in terms of of my sitting in the teaching seat, if I get deluded into thinking that I can help you with your suffering, (laughs) I'm in trouble. The only suffering I can do anything about is my own suffering. And I can, I can say something about what has been helpful for me, and if that's something that you are inclined to pick up and you find that useful, that's great. This is about uh, five minutes early, but you know that's the point at which His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, and if it's not useful, forget it. <laughs> but I think he's, he's right. And sometimes, you know, we're not ready to pick something up when we hear about it, but 10 years later, we think, oh, I remember. Really interesting. Way back there is a hand. Yes? You. Yes, you. I don't. (laughs) Well, we talk about a sudden sound, you know. Maybe that's loud enough. (laughs) Catches our attention. I'm making a distinction between that kind of attention and the kind of attention that I can train for that's stable and begins to have over time more and more energy about it. So that the more I can be in attention when a reaction arises, I actually have the choice then to be present with the reaction and experience it not only rising but vanishing. And I'm not then feeding and recreating that reaction. But reaction is based on the past. That's different from being in attention and response. I'm making a, a distinction between response and reaction. See, that, I call that response, if he's really present. And, you know, that was what was so great about hanging out with Suzuki Roshi, because he was somebody who had a capacity to be present much more than very many of the people I've met in my life. Well, I'm not saying anything about the recent past or the past 20 years ago. I'm not making that distinction. 
but that uh, I do think that what I'm referring to as reaction has to do with something I experienced in the past. It doesn't have to do with being present. I mean, one of the things that I know from being around a f- few people with a pretty developed capacity for presence is that um, along with that capacity to be present was the characteristic of enormous ease and relaxation. So there's a kind of spaciousness, a kind of uh, very big, big feel, what I call, sometimes call field awareness. So what arises is not, um, is, is in, the, in that instance, not about the past, but about the present moment. You know, s- some years ago, um, there was a man at, uh, at the medical school in San Francisco, named, uh, a man named Joe Camilla, who was studying this stuff with meditators. And um, Suzuki Roshi and Katagiri Roshi were both two of the people being studied in, in Joe Camilla's uh, project. And um, they'd be sitting in a room that was very quiet, and there'd be a sudden noise, and, and there'd be this change in brainwave states. And it didn't matter how many times the noise sounded. Every time it was the first time Suzuki Roshi heard the noise. I don't know if that gets at what you're bringing up, but it's what came up for me. And now it is time to (laughs) say that uh, I hope something is and my speaking tonight is useful to you, and as His Holiness proposed, if not, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Nice to see you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.